All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Liam McCollum Show. Today, I am joined by my friend Ethan Holmes again. I've had him on the show before to talk about the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and I'm recording today on February 24th, 2023, um, and it is the one-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. Um, purposefully said that it was the one-year anniversary of the invasion, not the conflict, and we're about to get into why that is. Uh, but for anyone who is watching and is new to the show, uh, please subscribe, give it a like, share it with your friends. Also, um, if you like this episode, please go back and listen to my interview that I recorded with, uh, Darren Gobb on Wednesday. We were discussing the defend the guard act that is going through the Montana legislature this session. And what the defend the guard act will do is it will prevent the national government from nationalizing the, uh, Montana guard for, undeclared wars. And, and he is a retired Lieutenant Colonel. Um, and he came on to talk about why he supports the defend the guard act. And, uh, that hearing is coming up on Monday at 3 PM in the Montana legislature. So if you are interested in that, please go back and, and, uh, give that episode a listen, but I'm going to bring in Ethan and I'm going to have him introduce himself. How are you doing, Ethan? Good. It's good to see you. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah. Uh, thanks for joining again. I've had you on like, I think, what is it like four times now? This might be the fifth. We've had a, a lot of discussions on a lot of things, obviously mainly this conflict as of late, but uh, always a welcome guest uh, and you're always a welcome interviewer. So I appreciate it. And I like what you guys are doing with the um, Defend the Guard Act as well. It's really great legislation. Wish it were, uh, you know, being considered in more places around the country. Uh, so I hope we see a success here in uh, Montana for sure. Yeah, hopefully Montana ends up being the first state to pass it. I know that Arizona just passed it through a committee a couple of weeks ago. Um, so, I mean, they might be the first, but if not, uh, I think Montana actually has pretty big chance of, of getting it through. Uh, hopefully the governor will sign it if that's the case. But why don't you just introduce yourself for people who um, aren't aware of who you are and haven't listened to the previous podcasts? Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, as Liam uh, has alluded to, I am a Russia specialist. Um, I am a reporter with the Sputnik Newswire, and I have a degree in uh, Russian and political science from the University of Montana, uh, which is where I met Liam originally. Uh, my interest in Russia, kind of to give you my own personal background and uh, entry into this subject, uh, began when I had to choose a language kind of at random to study at the University of Montana, uh, which they require for a, a number of their degrees. And I didn't really feel any sort of connection to, you know, German, Spanish, they're, they're very popular. Uh, French is disgusting. Chinese, Arabic sounded a little too hard for me. Um, but I had a friend from a Russian speaking part of Eastern Ukraine who was an exchange student in high school. And so I just kind of decided to take Russian. I'd have someone to practice with, someone to help, and then a, uh, you know, a genuine reason to pursue it. It also seemed politically relevant, uh, even at that time in 2016. Um, when I first began studying at the University of Montana, uh, Russia quickly broke into the news cycle because of the, uh, the election of Donald Trump and all of the uh, Russia collusion stories going on at the time. And so after studying at the University of Montana, graduating, I went to Novosibirsk in the heart of Siberia, the largest city out there, uh, where I taught English for some time, uh, familiarized myself further with the Russian language, culture, society. Um, and I really, I fell in love there in Siberia. Um, with the people and the culture and the history that was just so incredibly rich um, and so incredibly similar in, in a lot of ways to, to how we live here in America. Um, 
you know, the, the Russian soul and the American soul, I think are closer than a lot of people realize. And that's something that I really took home uh, when I eventually came back here due to the circumstances of the uh, um, pandemic that I don't think can be named here uh, in the uh, YouTube video. I hope this doesn't uh, affect the algorithm. Uh, RIP, if so, F's in the chat. Um, but that's a long uh, way to say that I eventually ended up reporting on Russia about a year, a couple months ago. And um, now I'm here. Uh, the invasion, the uh, special military operation, as it's referred to in Russia, um, commenced uh, several months into my work. And I've kind of been covering that as a focus ever since on the national and international levels. And a year ago, um, I actually remember I was messaging you as uh, there were reports that Russia began its invasion. And um, the weeks prior were pretty interesting because I remember being pretty um, doubtful that an invasion was about to happen. I thought that a lot of it was just, um, you know, the military industrial complex and uh, a lot of congressmen, uh, you know, trying to start some drama there and, and potentially uh, get us in a position where, where they could send more aid to Ukraine or aid to Taiwan. So I, I didn't think that there was anything really um, about to happen, but I, I was aware of the the political situation there and that the Biden administration was sending um, missiles to Ukraine that uh, Putin had serious problems with and that we had um, exited some treaties, some nuclear treaties during the Trump presidency, which Putin uh, complained about. But now that it is the, the one year anniversary of the invasion, I think that it might be um, important to give it some context and really question whether it's accurate to frame this as the one year anniversary of the war, because we're seeing a lot of that in the press right now. And I intentionally named this podcast the one year anniversary of the Ukraine invasion, because, you know, I, I sent out a tweet this morning saying that the reality is, is that there has been a civil war in Ukraine since 2014. Um, so I'm curious if, if you can just reflect on that and take that where you will. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think any worthwhile understanding of this conflict, its parties, its players, the dynamics at hand uh, relies on a really strong understanding of the historical context. Um, and like you said, uh, we were we were living together actually at the time as roommates when the uh, when the invasion first happened. And I remember sitting there in our kitchen watching the UN Security Council hold an emergency meeting on the matter. And I was likewise taken by surprise, even as someone who was covering the buildup, uh, the US's repeated warnings, um, I was not at all entirely confident um, that Russia was gonna make any sort of major play on Ukraine despite the buildup. Um, so I will be the first to admit uh, that I was mistaken there in my analysis. Um, but ever since, um, I think what's been most important is getting out information about how we got to that point, February 24th, 2022, one year ago. Because as you as you mentioned and made very clear, the conflict didn't just start one year ago today. Uh, the conflict goes back to 2014 by some people's standards, um, you know, years before that by others. And the tension and the dynamics of the Russian-Ukrainian relationship really go back um, to the, the founding of the state of Ukraine, uh, or even the founding of the Kievan Rus hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, we've gone over these uh, topics, the historical context more in depth than previous episodes. I would absolutely uh, suggest people go and listen to those if they ever uh, have a, a keen interest in the subject. Uh, but long story short, 
Russia and Ukraine are distinct people and entities, but there's a lot of interconnectedness uh, linguistically, culturally, historically. The Kievan Rus, founded by Prince Vladimir the Great, were exactly that, Kievan. They were founded in the city of Kiev. Uh, and he baptized the Russian people as Christian. That kind of marks the founding of the Kievan Rus. Uh, but eventually, over time, the center of power of the Kievan Rus, you know, and their uh, uh, successors shifted to different places. At, at some times, it was in Novgorod. At some points, it was in Moscow. At others, it was in you know Saint Petersburg, which came much much later. Uh, Leningrad, as it was renamed in the Soviet era, um, shifted back to Moscow in the Soviet era as well. Uh, so there's a long history of the center of power of the Russian people shifting. Uh, moreover, you have the Soviet connection of Ukraine and Russia existing as separate entities within a united Soviet state. Um, and the boundaries, the territories of Ukraine shifted in this time under the Soviet Union. They were gifted, for example, the Crimean Peninsula, which had not until that point uh, been definitively considered part of any Ukrainian entity. Um, and then you have the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And then you have the situation where Ukraine wants security guarantees as a newly independent state. Russia, you know, steps in and they have this new uh, kind of defeated humiliation as now a second tier world power and their rise back up trying to get up the ranks. Um, they're they're vying for both power and influence and, you know, uh, sovereignty as a state, which at least by its own perception, is existentially threatened uh, by NATO expansion and enlargement. Uh, so that's the best I can do, kind of uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, grand synopsis, 30,000 feet of, of Russo-Ukrainian relationships leading into this. I think it'd be worthwhile doing a deeper dive in the more recent years, um, you know, 2008, 2014, up until 2022, and we saw the launch of the special military operation. Um, but I hope that answers at least the, the broad context foundational setting here uh, for why this conflict is a conflict extending years and not simply a year, as has largely been portrayed in Western media, celebrated even as one year. Yeah, I had a friend who who joked that today seemed like a holy war for the regime. If if you followed a lot of the the news articles, and I would have to agree. I mean, some people were really uh, gloating over the fact that um, you know it almost that they were celebrating the fact that they were able to. Uh, continue to send weapons to weapons manufacturers almost is, is the motivation that I cynically um, believe is, is driving a lot of that. But for anyone who- So we saw the, uh, the binding of religious fervor to this conflict among a largely secular group of the population, may I add, when they started making such as uh, St. Javelin memes and the like, um, you know, I'm, I'm not one to criticize people for, you know, odd artistic expressions of, of their ideals and interests. Um, but it is certainly strange to be trying to canonize um, and, and sanctify uh, violent warfare. Um, there's a dissonance there for sure. Yeah. And, and for anyone who, who didn't see this yesterday, actually, NATO tweeted out that uh, they were comparing this conflict to Harry Potter, to Dune, to um, Star Wars. Uh, it, it was pretty ridiculous. Wow. I mean, it, it, this is something that I've been saying for a long time is that uh, we it's like they're living through a crappy liberal war film. Um, and like, it's, it's almost from the same spirit of like, uh, um, kind of Marvel movies where they really think that 
at the end of this conflict, everyone will, you know, assemble, uh, Avengers will assemble and they'll be able to simply just defeat Russia. And I just don't think that that's, that's an accurate assessment. Um, and, and it's really downplaying the, the power of, of that country and also the potential allies that it has in, in a larger conflict. We're seeing that um, Russia is actually being pushed in the direction of China. Um, and there's this economics or economic brick system and, and Saudi Arabia is actually um, about to join it, I think. So uh, it, it's just naive to think that this war is in a vacuum where um, the U.S. just can roll through and regime change Russia, which seems to be um, a lot of politicians' goals in this conflict, especially if you if you look at like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell. I mean, they'll say as much that they hope Putin oversteps so uh, someone can get involved and, and take Putin out, I think is how Lindsey Graham put it. Yeah, well, and uh, avoiding escalation is one of the most important things uh, that should be foremost on the mind of any serious statesman or diplomat. Uh, we all understand, we all really do know the risks of escalating this conflict beyond how it currently stands. Um, bringing a peer-to-peer -peer clash between NATO and Russia, potentially dragging in other major powers like China, Iran, North Korea, it would be a third world war, as many people have labeled it. Um, that can definitely sound cliche or even hyperbolic, but in this case, it truly isn't. Um, we would see two clashing global coalitions um, who will both get dead set in a, in a sunk cost fallacy. Um, we kind of hear that sort of thinking already from Biden, the State Department. He, he, he said earlier that the cost at this point of walking away um, would be far higher then, you know, if we continue just spending and spending as long as this conflict will take. Well, that's not proper logical thinking right there. Um, that's not an accurate way to be doing that cost-benefit analysis. And I think that's what's really intuitively understandable to a lot of the American people right now. The one-year anniversary in a lot of people's minds has sparked a sort of reflection point, almost like when you get into a one-year anniversary of a relationship. You have to ask yourself, is this something that I'm willing to commit to? You know, is this a marriageable relationship? Or am I simply stringing along, wasting time, ultimately setting up for something that's gonna be greater heartbreak, much messier than it would have been had it been nipped in the bud shortly, right? And that's that's a scary sort of uh, ultimatum position to have to be in, whether we totally abandon or totally buckle down. Um, because treading a middle ground in, in a lot of people's mind doesn't seem sustainable. We can't just keep having a proxy war against a player um, that's getting increasingly, increasingly frustrated um, with the, the level of assistance that's being given to this proxy. Um, and so on this one year anniversary of the invasion, I would really implore people to think about it in that terms, uh, those terms. Are we willing to commit to this relationship truly wholeheartedly, 100%? Are we willing to risk the life of a marriage? You know, in a marriage, you're willing to risk your life for that person that you're married. I think similarly, that's how we should think about our, our international relations. If we're really willing to bind ourselves to a country, we have to be willing to say as America, this is an existential cause for us. We are willing to dissolve ourselves as a nation if it pays the price for Ukraine. And I think a lot of Americans absolutely aren't in that mindset. I wouldn't blame them. I certainly am not. I think any rationally minded person who has not been either thoroughly brainwashed or totally bought out by the powers that be hold that position. 
that is not to say that I think everyone who is a fervent supporter of Ukraine uh, is, is propagandized into the position and simply doesn't understand it. Uh, there are certain people who I absolutely respect um, who hold firm to the principle of uh, self-defense that this even regardless of any sort of provocation or other circumstances regarding NATO and Russia, that you can never justify this invasion. I'm very sympathetic to that position. I, I hold it myself that you really can't justify any sort of violent action just as a, as a libertarian ethical principle. Um, but to pretend as though the larger actions of NATO and the West, the larger dynamics that have been at hand for the last two, three decades between Russia and the West, to pretend as though those aren't relevant and that those haven't been pushing towards where we are now, to where we ended up a year ago today. It's simply foolish. It's dishonest to think that way. Uh, so as people listen to this conversation, as they kind of soak in what we've, we're at already, I hope that they've reached that, that point where they can, they can recognize that if we back away from both players, from both meta-narratives that are battling each other in this conflict, the only things that really matter are avoiding escalation and reaching peace sooner rather than later. Uh, you know, either making a definitive choice that we are a, a nation and a people of peacemakers, or we are a nation and a people um, of, of war makers, of war mongers. Uh, so I, I think I know where you stand as well, Liam. Um, but you know, as a Montana here in the in the nuclear sponge, um, I know that we have a particular worry about this issue and its outcome. Yeah, and and that's a reference to a, a testimony that I made in front of a Montana legislative committee a, a couple of weeks ago, where I made the case that it's really not in our interest to um, escalate this war because there is a serious risk here that this could bubble over into World War III or a nuclear conflict. And um, our own national intelligence director, she said that if Putin feels that his regime is being threatened or if he is about to lose the war, he may launch nukes. And um, unfortunately, because of our triad nuclear system in the United States, um, we, we have sea-based missiles, we have ground-based missiles, and then we have long-range missiles. And these, these ground-based missiles are a part of the nuclear sponge, and many of them are located in Montana and the surrounding states. And literally the intended purpose of, of these missiles are to soak up um, a nuclear strike. It, the idea is that if, if they wanted to launch a preemptive strike on a larger city like Austin or DC, they would have to launch enough sufficient to, you know, take out any of the nukes that are, are potentially launched from Montana. So um, in a lot of the, you know, um, the, they have these like videos of like a simulation of, of how nuclear war will play out. Um, and, and Russia, you know, launches one into Ukraine and then immediately launches into Europe and then we respond. And then uh, in these simulations, you'll see that they end up in the Northwest. <laughs> and it's like, that that's why. Um, but for for people who are curious about the background um, and, and want to go deeper and, and look at maybe how this conflict has evolved since the 90s, I have an interview with Benjamin Avalo, who, who came on the show to talk about his book, How the West Brought War to Ukraine. Um, and he makes the case that you know, it's not just NATO expansion. That is often what, what people say. It is also the fact that the United States has left many treaties over the years. Um, it, it left the anti-ballistic missile treaty in 2002, and then it left the um, uh, Open Skies Treaty in 2020, 
And then there's one more that was it the inner, the INF treaty in 2018, I believe that, that Trump pulled us out of. Yeah, I'm not clear on that. That sounds right. Yeah. So it's the INF treaty, I, I think, which, which um, restricted the amount of intermediate range missiles that could be placed. And that's, that's one of Putin's contentions here is that these, these longer range missiles are being pushed closer and closer to Russia's border within Ukraine. And in, in Russia's or in Putin's speech the other day, he actually said, like, the closer that these missiles get to our border, the further he'll have to um, push back. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm curious if, if we can go into where things currently stand in the war, um, just to kind of give some perspective, because I think that a reality here is that the, the longer the United States takes to actually push for negotiations, uh, the more Ukrainians will die. Um, they'll, they'll continue to be used as as cannon fodder. And this is something that was actually popularized, uh, a narrative that was popularized by Elon Musk. He said the outcome of this war is, is the same. Um, it, it will be the same as it as it could have been in February um, if, if we prolong this war in, into another year. Uh, the reality is, is that Ukraine will likely lose this war um, and we, we need to actually sit sit down, push Putin and Zelensky to the table and, and negotiate peace and have no preconditions. Um, and the longer we wait, uh, the more Ukrainians will die. So I'm just curious if one, you can respond to that. Maybe I, I have that wrong. Maybe you disagree. And then uh, just explain where things stand currently and, and maybe the amount of casualties we're seeing in Ukraine. I think that will give a lot of perspective. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I wanted to second your recommendation of your interview on uh, how the how the West brought war to Ukraine. Um, it's it's really a, a phenomenal piece. And just to kind of fill in that gap there between the very very abbreviated broad historical uh, lead in and more contemporary issues like might be brought up in that book. Um, two really critical moments are going to be one the Niet means Niet memo, which really nowadays especially has to make us wonder whether peace is even the goal here at play because in 2008 then ambassador to russia william burns who's now the director of the cia mind you uh, sent a memo uh, to all the you know heads of government uh, heads of the u.s government at the time and essentially informed them it means need on russia's end no means no and what the memo laid out is how russia perceived and understood NATO expansion and enlargement, particularly in Georgia and Ukraine, as matters of significant security concern. Uh, they viewed it, as I've said, as a potential existential risk uh, to the Russian nation, to Russian sovereignty, to their ability um, yeah, to keep themselves defended as uh, weapons and forces and integrated uh, militaries encroached closer and closer and closer to the border. Now, it's often called whataboutism to say, well, what if this happened to the US in this circumstance? But it's a useful thought experiment nonetheless. And we've actually seen it happen with the Cuban Missile Crisis. When other military blocs, when other rival powers start placing military equipment and allied forces, start sharing technology that trickles closer to our borders, we kind of flip the fuck out. Um, and understandably so. It's not like I'm saying we should have just remained calm during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but these issues are certainly sensitive ones from either side. And to pretend as though you're only allowed to be offended by encroaching military forces, but not someone else, is kind of the crux of the issue here. Uh, there are words thrown around very often by different people with different agendas, 
but unipolar and multipolar perspectives of how the world order should operate is really something that's a major uh, theoretical issue at hand in this, in this conflict. Whether we should try and have security through a unified, integrated bloc, such as NATO and the US, which slowly and slowly expands its hegemony across the globe until there's no reason to fight because everyone's under the same umbrella, uh, versus the multipolar perspective, which seeks to have uh, independent, either regional or localized blocks of power that all cooperate, negotiate, and interact with each other as uh, kind of a confederacy of players, as opposed to a federation uh, of the globe. Uh, and although I'm certainly not wholly sympathetic you know, to the Chinese government, to the Russian government, to the Iranian, North Korean government, uh, their point about expanding US NATO hegemony and what it implies for the world order, that is, that would be unipolar under them, is understandably a threat to their sovereignty. They don't view themselves as being able to be independent peoples, independent cultures, nations, uh, uh, localized governments able to operate under this globalist unipolar system. Uh, and so going back to this 2008 Niet means Niet memo, we were warned over, uh, you know, over a decade ago that this was a very real concern of Russia and that if we continue to pursue a foreign policy of NATO enlargement and expansion, conflict and significant conflict at that was a very, very real risk. Now, at no point in that time since the Niet means Niet memo and its eventual leak, it was classified, it was leaked by WikiLeaks, um, at no point did we steer away from this foreign policy of, of provoking the bear, so to speak, of, of poking this Ukrainian nerve, this thorn in their side. Um, and we got the answer that we kind of expected, that we were warned by Burns would happen. Um, the Niet means Niet memo in a very uh, summarized form is the U.S. saying, if we expand NATO, we are fucking around. And the likelihood that we find out is high. And um, that's where we ended up a year ago today, is uh, we found out. And uh, another important point before we can move on here to like the current, current state of the battlefield in Ukraine is to note a figure that's also been mentioned, like you said, by people like Elon Musk, by Trump personally, uh, by a number of Congress people, is Victoria Newland, our current undersecretary of state for political affairs, kind of a low key position that actually has a lot of power. Uh, she was former U.S. ambassador to NATO as well, um, kind of a long-term, deep state, militaristic uh, uh, crony. And she, as has been pointed out, has been pushing for this conflict more than almost any other person. Her and P uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken in particular are huge proponents of this conflict and seemingly have zero concern about nuclear conflict, about the broader implications of an expanding third world war. Uh, and it's incredibly disappointing to know that our leaders had the knowledge, they had the foresight, they had the proper analysis at their fingertips of how to play this out in the safest and most diplomatic way possible. And it seems that at every single corner, they chose to provoke instead of to cooperate, to negotiate, to reach any sort of middle ground settlement. Uh, now, of course, you can't just appease every other power. You know, that's not the essence of multipolarity either. Uh, it's all about sincere, authentic engagement. And one of the major critiques that Russia and Putin has made of Western leadership is a lack of sincerity and authenticity in their word, in their actions, in performative contradictions and uh, you know hypocrisy. And no government obviously is free of those sins, um, their governments uh, at the end of the day, um, but they're valid points when you yourself are um, 
you know, casting these stones. You know, the U.S. has a giant stick in its own eye and is trying to get flex um, out of others, uh, which is just an unfortunate uh, morality to be following here when it comes to foreign relations. Uh, and it's why we continue to have, uh, to this very day, people dying uh, needlessly on the battlefield. Yeah, and a point that I've been trying to make is that the reason you're starting to see third world countries or um, you know developing countries uh, fall in line almost and and start to kind of accept this new order that is is kind of emerging on the, on the international scene of like this brick system is because the U.S. has really put Putin in a position where he can grandstand because they have gone around and they have toppled. Uh, Libya, they have toppled the Iraqi government. Um, they're attempting to do the same in Syria. So they're really putting, you know, our quote unquote enemies in a position where they can point these examples out and say, don't we need an alternative? And so if, if you really do think that Putin and Xi are, you know, threats to the United States, uh, and I, I don't really adopt that line of thinking, but if you were to, you're kind of putting them in a position where they're all going to get behind each other. And I, I think that's actually what we're seeing um, in this alliance. And we, we saw that Putin actually met with a high ranking diplomat from China the other day. Um, and to your point about peace, um, you know, CIA, the CIA director, the fact that the, the current CIA director was the ambassador, was he the ambassador to Russia when he, when he yeah, leaked he was the ambassador to Russia? Yeah, the fact that he acknowledged that this was a red line and he is currently falling in line behind uh, the Russia or the narrative that we're seeing come out of the, the Biden administration that that we really do need to defeat Russia so that they're unable to do what they did in Ukraine again um, shows that maybe they aren't interested in peace. And I, I wonder if, if you think that maybe there are some ulterior motives. And this actually goes to a question that um we got submitted by Wyatt LaPrame. Uh, and he, he's wondering if, if the U.S. were to go long term in this proxy war, will it benefit the taxpayers or ultimately the pockets of career politicians? Or is this the U.S. living the glory days of Cold War thinking? And I think that that's very related. I, you know, I, I'm curious if if maybe peace isn't uh, their interest here. And we, we saw that um, I think it was the German foreign minister said that that what's at risk here is the um, uh international order so it's mm -hmm. clear that they're they're kind of more interested in um kind of unipolarity and and having hegemony on on a world stage so i'm, I'm curious what you think about that yeah uh, lots of lots of great tangents to go on here and to kind of uh, i'm going to segue this into wyatt's question uh, but you mentioned libya and this will be a good point of where we can highlight the financial interests of this war for the United States. This is something that I don't think gets quite enough attention, but is certainly a major contributing factor to the United States and the broader Western world's motives here. And that's the fact that the world, the US would like the world to run entirely on the dollar, uh, because that's largely entirely really what gives the dollar its strength, right? Uh, I know you have a bunch of libertarians, uh, mostly probably entirely libertarians listening to this stream. Um, and so they well understand uh, fiat versus backed currencies and how the US dollar works, uh, you know, uh, Federal Reserve, central banking, all that. So I'm going to skip all the basics and just get to the point that those are all fundamental to the US's war aims 
uh, not just in supporting this proxy war against Ukraine, but in a number of these examples that powers like Russia point to, uh, like the U.S. Uh, intervening in Libya, uh, where, you know, say anything else that you want to about Gaddafi as a dictator. Um, but a large part of what made the U.S. mad about his policy was trying to pursue a broader, you know, regional or global economic system that could be separated from the economics of the United States dollar and trading, particularly oil in this United States dollar. Now, Russia uh, and BRICS, as you've mentioned, as kind of a, as an alliance there, China as well, they have all been seeking and looking to expand and bolster networks of trade that are outside of the United States dollar. When a lot of these sanctions get imposed, a lot of what it does is it limits Russia and Western companies' ability to do business with Russia by not allowing them to transact through these U.S. financial network systems and in the United States dollar. Uh, but at the same time, this forces and pushes Russia to develop this ulterior system. That's where Russia is projected to do better than the U.K. in this next year economically. They're expected to have um, more growth than you would have expected from a country under such severe sanctions. The reason being that Russia for some time now has been trying to build up a sanction resilient economy by separating itself from the necessity of using the United States dollar for global trade. Now, the more nations that separate from this global uh, economic hegemony of the U.S. dollar and, and the trade that it facilitates, that's a risk to U.S. hegemony and NATO military security hegemony overall. You know, if you don't have the gold to back up your steel, your steel really means very little. Um, and so I wanted to just highlight that point really quickly, that there are financial grand motives at play here when the U.S. intervenes in conflicts, and particularly as it tries to maintain um, a global economic system and world order underneath the U.S. dollar and the NATO umbrella. Now, for the U.S. taxpayer, this is not an ideal situation, uh, as I'm sure you've concluded yourself listening already. Uh, we continue to pump money, print more money, you know, authorize more expenditures from Congress, more presidential drawdowns, uh, you know, more pulls from our own military stocks. And we're continually draining ourselves in the gamble, in the hope, that we come out on top in this proxy conflict, in which case we get all the, you know, Keynesian logic bidding to invest in the, the rebuilding of Ukraine, building this new uh, cyber tech hub um, in a destroyed country, get to kind of do a new Marshall plan, all these big companies, BlackRock will get a chunk of the pie. Meanwhile, all throughout the conflict as it extends, the only players really benefiting are those in the military industrial complex, those developing the tanks, the armored vehicles, the drones, the missiles getting sent to Ukraine. And the people who then have to restock the U.S. stockpiles are those same companies, oddly enough. Uh, so there's an incentive there to send the people. Why would we drain our stockpiles? Well, because we get to pay for new stockpiles and that makes certain people particularly happy. But for the U.S. taxpayer, they should not be happy. Because if we come out on the bottom of this proxy conflict, if we pull out too late, if we don't manage to reach a peaceful negotiated settlement in the proper way, we are just going to start bleeding and hemorrhaging. And there will be no way to recover it because we, we, we will have lost any good faith and any uh, remaining ties to a resilient global economic system. We will have to totally rework how our political and economic systems operate in the wake of a disastrous proxy conflict of this scope. And so that's where I circle back to this anniversary as a moment of reflection about whether we are willing to marry the U.S. and its existence to Ukraine or whether we have to find a way to negotiate a breakup here 
uh, in this you know, love triangle, so to speak, uh, with Russia, Ukraine, and ourselves, the collective West. Um, and the taxpayer, the longer it takes us to figure out, the larger a check they may have to write uh, should we most likely fail. Yeah, and I mean, there's a serious concern here just considering, I mean, everything from the CARES Act as Trump left um, office, where he, you know, passed one of the largest spending bills in history that has contributed to a lot of the inflation we're seeing, um, whether there's a serious reality that this is just kind of a Hail Mary attempt to save the fiat system on a, on a global stage. And if they fail, um, we, we could be living through a system. If, if they choose to default through more inflation, we, we could be living through a Venezuelan type system where we, we have hyperinflation, if, especially if on, on the globe, global stage, we start to see um, the ruble uh, outperform. And I think that, that that is a serious concern because um, Saudi Arabia is actually, I, I think they, they are allowing um, oil to be pegged by, by the ruler or by the ruble. I think they are allowing it to be priced in the ruble and, and sold in the ruble. So um, if that's, I mean, if that's really what this is about, it, it could mean, you know, very serious things and, and it could have serious consequences for the lifestyle of, of the average American. And I'm very concerned about it. And it didn't have to be this way either. The United States could have been going around and, and being, you know, the shining city on a hill that the founders said we should be, and we should not, you know, we shouldn't have been getting involved in the foreign affairs of other countries and we should have been trading with them because really I think that the best thing that we could do is export our culture, um, create things here, export our culture and, and be that shining city on a hill, be an example to these countries that are tyrannical, um, try to incentivize trade to these countries, meet with, um, you know, North Korea and, and negotiate potentially sending American goods to this this country so that they might be more willing to be peaceful with the United States in the future or something like that. That that is a reality where where we actually aren't threatened, where we we do not we don't have China or Russia being significant threats to the United States. But I think our own actions have put us in a position where we are going to be weakened financially. Um, so it, it actually does start to look like we we're also threatened in a, in a foreign policy sense, too, because we haven't backed away from this policy of of um, waving a big stick around in, in the Middle East in particular. And now we're, we're trying to extend that policy into Europe. And it's, it's very concerning. Um, you're, you're very, uh, very right, Liam. And one of the one of the saddest parts of this whole thing, right, is that the same people that we would be sending to go die in war and ruining, taking away their futures are the same exact people whose futures and livelihoods we take away through this risky economic supplying proxy war, right? The more that we spend and spend away, the more of a destabilized economic system we create for the United States, the more we build ourselves up in this giant Ponzi scheme. You know, it's not the old people it's not who are going to have to live through the hearts of the consequences who are going to have to strive to rebuild in the wake of the destruction. It's the younger generation who would also be sent out on boats on airplanes into war to die there and have their futures taken away. And so to pretend as though a proxy war of this scope and scale can't be just as destructive 
in certain ways to the livelihoods and future of young people of a country, you know, it's it's mistaken. Um, there is a price being paid. Uh, the Biden administration really likes to tout how they're confident that the vast majority of Americans out there are entirely sure that this is the right move, that they're even willing to know that there's consequence and sacrifice and negative outcomes, and they're still willing to do it anyway. That's not the sentiment that I hear. That's not the sentiment I hear widely among common apolitical people, among talking heads in private, but by the sound of what you hear from the administration and its talking heads and spokespeople, you would think the average American is sitting there waving a yellow and blue, blue flag on a daily basis, throwing dollar signs like a, you know, like they're at a stripper. It's, it's degrading to picture the average American as having that sort of foreign policy mindset. We know very well, you know, it's a fact. Americans like to complain about the amount of foreign aid that we give out because it's a lot, but it's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of our budget. You know, that's a, that is a valid point that is made to counter that argument. But nevertheless, the American sentiment against that tiny fraction of the budget is remarkably negative across the board, which is why it's all the more frustrating that an administration knowing this is a political fact continues to lie blatantly to the Americans in hope that they will eventually adopt that belief. You know, if you repeat it enough to them, eventually people will start to believe it. Um, in this case, I don't think enough of the American public believes it to have this be a solid national war effort, uh, because we've seen what happens when Americans really, really care about a war and a conflict. We know that America can become the iron giant almost overnight when a conflict uh, worthy of its full attention really arises. And we can just tell that this isn't a conflict that fully rouses America's spirit. It's called a self-defense and action to defend itself and its existence. It doesn't meet that scale. So why are we depriving ourselves, sending out these resources to deplete ourselves just as though we were sending flesh and blood to go die? It's, it's, it's a shame. And uh, to kind of, I know we want to talk about the, the current, kind of where the battlefield stands right now in Ukraine. And I've mentioned this before on your podcast, but the fog of war isn't remarkably thick. Even with all the GoPros out there, all the drones that are hovering in the sky, um, all the footage that we get sent, uh, it's a fraction of the reality. It's clipped and snippeted. And truly, unless you are there smelling the blood and sulfur and, you know, burning everything in the air on the battlefield, it's hard to definitively say that you know what's going on there. And the wide array of casualty counts and estimates that we see around are reflective of just how thick this fog of war is, uh, of how strong information operations are on both sides. Um, so it's, it's important to note that the Ukrainian government isn't particularly transparent in providing their own battlefield casualty figures, uh, you know, for understandable reasons, uh, although it is rather opaque. Uh, but as for Russian figures, uh, even there, there is discrepancy among major powers, even in the West. Um, so I have some quick notes written down here. The UK Defense Ministry um, recently said that they estimate around 60,000 killed Russians, 200,000 total casualties. So that includes injured, um, you know, prisoners of war, anyone who's taken out of the conflict um, for one reason or another. Now, Ukrainian estimates go way beyond that. They more than double the number of killed and claim about 146,000 killed Russians and uh, approximately 600,000 casualties total for Russia, which is just astronomical. It's, it's uh, three times higher 
uh, as a casualty count than the UK uh, represents. So either the UK is really, really low in their estimate, or Ukraine is really, really, really inflating the numbers uh, of, of killed Russians. Um, other Western intelligence uh, analysts put it at about 150K casualties total for both sides. Um, the US has previously said that they think the uh, ratio is about one Russian to one Ukrainian taken off the battlefield. Um, when they said that, they said it was about 100,000 on each side, um, but it's been several months since then. Uh, and as for some insight into potential Ukrainian numbers, um, there was a supposed, I got to emphasize that, supposed Mossad Israeli intelligence report um, that Turkish media reported on, uh, which claimed that Ukraine had about 150,000 killed and over uh, 200,000 wounded, uh, which is higher than a lot of the estimates that you would hear uh, if they were just comparable to the Russians, um, but also not outside their own possibility. Once again, uh, perhaps Ukraine is correct and way more Russians are dying than we know and then Western intelligence is aware of. Uh, perhaps Ukraine is inflating and uh, the West is inflating and they're lower, but it's really impossible to know. Anyone who claims that they have super in-depth, accurate information is deluding themselves uh, or actively lying to you uh, because that's just not how things of this scale work. Um, especially when you're not there personally on the ground, you're not handling uh, the dog tags coming back, uh, the remains. It's just really tough to make any sort of definitive statement. That being said, in a strategic and tactical point of view here, uh, we're kind of at a fixed front in the east of Ukraine there, largely in the Donbass region, as well as some minor uh, operations in the south of the country, thereby the Crimean Peninsula, the city of Kherson. Uh, it's been largely uh, compared to World War One style fighting, where you have fixed uh, positions, entrenchments, lots of artillery, rocket barrages uh, to soften targets up before you send people in, uh, because that's kind of the crux of warfare, right? Eventually, you always have to send people in. Uh, and that's one of the major concerns that even the most ardent pro-Ukrainian supporters have expressed, is that Russia simply has more numbers. They can continue to mobilize. And you have to send in troops to defend. It doesn't matter how many HIMARS, how many Humvees, how many tanks you have. If you don't have bodies to operate them, you simply lose. That's the nature of warfare. And although I admit there would be problems in trying to mobilize a ton of Russian forces, uh, simply as a matter of mathematics, uh, it would be remarkable for Ukraine to be able to win a war of attrition as these World War I type conflicts tend to boil down to. Uh, which is why we're hearing both sides are supposedly preparing for uh, almost simultaneous uh, simultaneous counteroffensives against one another. Yeah, uh, I have a question about that. What what is like the the mobilization capability of of Russia right now? I know that they uh, the last time we talked they were beginning a partial mobilization and I think a partial draft. Um, but like, if this were to go to full scale war. Uh, where are we at relative to that? Um, so, like, how uh, far can they go? Particularly close. Um, Russia has hundreds of thousands of more soldiers um, it could send into conflict, theoretically. Uh, once again, you never know exactly how many uh, young men you can take from a society before you start seeing revolts and uh, rebellion. Um, but safe to say there are hundreds of thousands more troops that could possibly be called up um, by Russia, uh, which is far more than Ukraine could possibly call up, especially with many of uh, the country's young men and a lot of their women and children having left the country and expressed in polls no desire to return. 
um, it was remarkable. Um, I can't remember exactly the figures, but a, a significant number of Ukrainian refugees who have left for countries such as Germany have expressed zero intention of returning to Ukraine, uh, which is a frightening prospect for a post-war Ukraine if you're looking to rebuild, uh, because much like war needs flesh and blood bodies uh, to be waged, so too does any sort of reconstruction effort. Um, and Russia, of course, will have a similar problem. Uh, it already had some demographic concerns, as many nations in the world do today. Um, and sending young men to die and having women leave your country out of fear doesn't help with demographic issues. That is for sure. Um, so, yes. Yeah, and along that line, I you know, call, I think it was Colonel Douglas McGregor. He had made the point that like Ukraine, like it, it's totally feasible that entire you know, years or, or classes of, of Ukrainians, like potentially men born in the year of 1999 have either left the country or been wiped out entirely. And this is partially why uh, they have needed to extend the draft to people who 16 and older. Um, so, I mean, that is a serious concern here too, that uh, Ukrainians just, or, or Russians outnumber Ukrainians significantly. And, and you can continue to send weaponry to Ukraine, but it it won't matter if there aren't any young Ukrainians to man the, that weaponry. Exactly. Uh, it's it's a really unfortunate but unavoidable fact of, of warfare um, is that you're going to only have a set number of, uh, of men, of people willing to go out there, able to go out there and fight and wage in these wars, whether they want to or not. Um, and yes, you're entirely correct. Uh, Russia does just have the mathematical advantage here and a mathematical, a mathematical advantage goes a long ways. Uh, to expand a little bit more on this question of what would total war look like, um, I always implore people in the West to talk to someone from Eastern Europe about World War II, uh, particularly from the Soviet Union, the Great Patriotic War is what they called it, because it is as close to the total war mobilization of society as you're going to get. You know, you had a lot of that in World War II, a lot of um, as close to total war as we've really ever seen. But the Soviet Union took it to the real extremes of what's, uh, you know, occurred on this planet. Uh, you look at things like the 900 plus day siege of Leningrad and what the Soviet people went through there. Um, the absolute massive death toll from battles like Stalingrad, the Eastern Front in general was insanely, insanely bloody, way more so than the Western Front. And it doesn't get nearly enough attention uh, in Western media, just how large the effort was. And similarly, uh, the thing that reminded me of this is when you talk about entire classes of men being wiped out, you saw that uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, in you know Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, in the, the Great Patriotic War, in World War II, where you know men born in the years 1938, 30, uh, sorry, uh, who turned 18 in the years like 1938, 1939, those generations were like 80, 90% wiped out in some cases. And I know this isn't the, the focus of the conversation, but with this larger um, aging demographic crisis in the West, losing that significant chunk of young people is an even more real concern now than it was uh, in the past. Uh, so definitely something to keep in mind and consider as we, as we ponder why peace is so important. Um, if we want to have countries that are able to come out of this conflict with the capacity to recover, you can only stretch them so thin and so far but before you just, someone else has to move in, so to speak. Um, so no. in terms of peace, it's just, it's a critical question. 
Yeah. Now, earlier we talked a little bit about um, the motivations for peace and whether that is really actually what's driving um, U.S. officials. And it seems like, especially with Blinken and Newland, they have, um, you know, personal investments in this. Uh, I mean, Newland's been involved in, in this conflict since 2014 when her phone call was leaked. Um, so we briefly touched on that, but I, I'm curious if we can just get into actually. Uh, so we talked about like the motivations here and whether people want um, peace, but can we get into like the prospects of peace and whether you think it's it's possible? Because, you know, I'm, I'm a little cynical. Uh, I, I think that it's clear that certain parties within the Biden administration are not interested and do not want to um, ease up at all. But at the same time, you get other parties that are expressing that maybe we need to shift uh, gears and, and focus more on the Asian Pacific. Um, so and, and that's scary in itself that people want to focus on Taiwan and, and China. Um, but, you know, half of the administration, at least that are involved in military um, uh, decisions seem totally invested, uh, even though Biden himself has expressed that he doesn't want to send men and, and women to Ukraine. Uh, you know, a little less than a year ago, he also said that he didn't want to send tanks to Ukraine. He said that that would be enough to spark World War III. And here we are sending tanks. And I do know that that timeline is a, a little uh, questionable, like those tanks might not get there for a while. Um, but now there are conversations about sending um, fighter jets. And I, I know that it's unlikely at this point, but there seems to be a pattern where uh, we say that we're not going to do something. Uh, we take three steps back and, and de-escalate kind of, or, or may, maybe we don't even take steps back. It's just that we wait a while and then we take two steps forward. Um, so I, I'm wondering what you where you think this is headed, because I'm, I'm pretty terrified. I think, I mean, just when you, when you consider the element of human error um, and the amount of examples throughout history where we have been very near to nuclear conflict like uh i i always forget the guy's name but that one the guy who manned the submarine um in the, the soviet, soviet admiral yeah yeah in, i can't i can't remember his name uh exactly either but i know the story that you're, you're speaking there's several such cases of, of nuclear officers miraculously stopping accidental uh nuclear yeah. conflict yeah and then i mean there there are many examples where um there are drills being held within the United States and they accidentally drop it in a river. I think it was in Georgia. There was an example that that there was a nuclear weapon dropped in a river and it still hasn't been found. Um, so like there are serious things to consider here and, and the element of human error where, you know, if if they're holding a military drill or something and, and it goes wrong and Russia perceives it as a nuclear threat because they don't have the same they don't have the same um, nuclear detectable uh, you know systems we we can we can tell if a nuke was launched at any point uh, in the world but Russia has an outdated system as um, I understand it so there are many times where they they've gotten false alerts and they don't they don't launch nukes in response because they're just betting on the fact that uh, it's a false alarm so uh, that's a lot to throw at you, but I, I'm curious what you think. No, I mean, it's, uh, I mean it's, a, it's a coherent set of concerns and questions. And so just to, to start on 
it's hard not to be cynical about prospects for peace. I think you're right. However, there are a couple pathways, uh, potential avenues that we could take to at least get to solid ground and start working on the issue. Uh, first, we see a uh, not insignificant movement within the United States Congress, uh, particularly among House uh, Republicans, uh, to audit, to end, to be more skeptical, to be more hesitant, to be sending blank checks, as they've put it, to Ukraine uh, for the foreseeable future, right? Because they are representative of this not insignificant portion of the American public who has realized that this has the potential to backfire, that it is not very clearly in their interest. And so although they have been kind of cast off as insignificant as this very minor group of radicals in Congress, they are representative of a much larger slice of the American public than it would seem by their presence in Congress. Uh, and I'm sure there are many more lawmakers who are equally or at least slightly skeptical of endless aid for the future, who are simply afraid to speak up for uh, fear that they lose political capital influence, potentially um, you know, small segments of their hyper-liberal bases uh, by expressing very real, rational, logical concerns um, economically in terms of foreign policy about continued involvement in this conflict. In terms of the Biden administration, I don't see many glimmers of hope, particularly among them in the State Department, the Pentagon, the White House. Um, they seem rather hellbent. They do seem rather committed and dedicated, as they've said, to being here as long as it takes. Um, and that's that's a big commitment. Once again, that's a marriage. You are saying forever when you say that, potentially. Um, and, and it's important to like ask because they always say it without context. They they don't clarify what the actual U.S. policy is towards Russia. But thankfully, we've had Lloyd Austin and Blinken say it a few times. Their policy is to defeat Russia and weaken them so that they're unable to do what they did in Ukraine again. Um, so, I mean, the fact that they're they're saying we will keep at this for as long as it takes. I mean, if if you're right that they can you know, draft hundreds of thousands of more men. Um, how, how long will that take? How many years is that going to take? And, and uh, how long will, will Putin stand by without launching a tactical nuke in Ukraine? I, I don't know. It's <laughs> terrifying. Well, it, it, they're, they're very reasonable questions. Uh, once more, the further on this conflict drags, particularly the further along it drags in this very awkward proxy war state, the higher the risk of escalation and the consequences of that escalation uh, become, which is why it's so important to start reflecting on these important questions now, because they are tough choices. They are hard just to make overnight. They take time and nuance. Um, but if you never begin to think about them, uh, you're never gonna reach them, right? Which is kind of the problem is that there are so few voices with legitimate diplomatic power who are working on actual sincere peace initiatives. Uh, we saw recently China, as you've uh, pointed out, has proposed a peace plan for Ukraine. Very broad, abstract theoretical points about state sovereignty and the right of nations, um, the, the importance of cooperation, those sorts of things. Um, but for the most part, you can agree with the vast majority of the statements made there just on the basis of violence being undesirable and cooperation being desirable. That's really 
albeit from China, it's a rather libertarian point being made in terms of foreign, foreign policy, at least non-interventionist in line with their uh, more multipolar view of how uh, the world system should work, even if you don't think that it's a sincere proposal, which is kind of the criticism that has been made is, uh, does China really even mean it? You know, if the same proposal were made about Taiwan, let's say, uh, would they be so keen on these uh, uh, values uh, that they're expressing? That is a I think it's a very uh, valid question to make, uh, but it doesn't detract necessarily um, from the points being made in regards to Ukraine in this exact scenario, where they are calling for peace for parties to sit down and to realize that this can't be a, uh, a situation in which one party comes out with the entire advantage, right? Um, obviously, no one wants to see uh, Russia coming out with the entirety of the Ukraine and anything else it wants, uh, we're just going to have free reign uh, over Eastern Europe and whatever it may want to, to pick, protect, um, demilitarize, denazify. Uh, on the other hand, you really don't want a situation either where Ukraine gets 100% of its demands, where it can demand Crimea back, demand the entirety of the Donbass and the peoples within it, um, you know, demand concessions uh, among who's going to lead the Russian state and future economic ties, their nuclear stockpiles. You know, I'm, I'm sure the list of what Ukraine would like, given ultimate authority, is long, lengthy, and ridiculous, as is it would be for Russia, should they have 100% leveraging bargaining power here. But that is the position that the Biden administration said that it will need to achieve before it even considers peace. They have said, we need the wind at Zelensky's back. We need to be uh, in a scenario where Zelensky can ask for anything at the negotiation table and receive that at the negotiation table. But the problem is that's not a negotiation table, right? That's a that's a demands table at that point. Genuine negotiation comes when both sides have some form of leverage uh, and desire to negotiate and sit down and come to a compromise, which of course is not going to be ideal for either state, but it is ideal compared to the Third World War uh, or, or, or large-scale uh, nuclear conflict. I'm sure we can all agree on that. And so to have these U.S. officials making this a black and white negotiation table removes the negotiation from the table. It's really the most frustrating part of hearing this foreign policy approach is that they're not desiring to be peacemakers. They're desiring to be peace demanders. Those are different things. Um, and the latter is not productive and is not reasonable to expect from another power, especially when that other power can tell you no with nukes. Uh, so that's a, that's a, Long way to say, I understand the cynicism about prospects for peace. That is not to say they don't exist. And that is not to say there aren't things that we can do to push ourselves closer to that. You know, if we have conversations like this and emphasize the real risk of nuclear war, if we emphasize the inevitable consequences to the global order, to the U.S. economic system, should we pursue this path? And particularly, should we pursue this path and fail in our end efforts? Uh, you know, Peace is always going to be tricky. It's often going to be unpopular, uh, but it is almost always the right pursuit. So, yeah, and I am curious. Um, I know we we hit the hour mark, but I'm I'm so interested in this, and I I'm I'm learning a lot here. So I, I do want to ask a couple more questions. Um, I mean, as someone who has studied Russia for a while, do you perceive the the nuclear threat to be real? Because the the national intelligence director herself as i said earlier has said that that if putin feels he's about to lose the war 
or if um, his regime is threatened, he will launch nukes. And I know that is the policy he expressed earlier um, this week. But there are other people who suggest that he would uh, gain nothing from from doing it, especially launching nothing in Ukraine itself. Um, can he be pushed to a point where he has nothing to lose? Yes. Um, and I don't come out with that yes so confidently because I think we're going to reach a point of nuclear conflict, but because that risk is very real and that decision could very well be made by Russian leadership in a variety of circumstances towards which we are currently pushing ourselves. Uh, for example, the Russian nuclear doctrine talks about their use in the event of an existential risk to Russia. And as we've said, uh, they perceive several potential existential risks, both from this conflict and the larger NATO expansion, uh, you know, US Western uh, uh, desire to push its hegemony further and further. Um, they also talk about mass casualty incidents. Should there be some sort of mass casualty attack on definitively Russian soil? So let's say, um, you know, somewhere like Belgorod, Moscow, St. Petersburg, they could in theory retaliate with a nuclear weapon. Now, the Biden administration has said, and I tend to agree with them on this, that the use of a strategic nuclear weapon is pretty much zero. It's remarkably low. Uh, but the use of a tactical nuclear weapon uh, is still low, but it's higher. Uh, and I would agree with that assessment, uh, that if they were to use a nuke, it would likely be a tactical nuke. And I think it likely would be in Ukraine, not anywhere else, um, because these situations in which I see a nuke being used, once again, however the, however slim the chances may be, would involve, let's say, some sort of large-scale, long-range Ukrainian strike into Crimea that just levels, you know, a bunch of uh, resorts there on the Crimean shore, um, kills a bunch of civilians there. That could very much be taken by Russian leadership as a mass casualty, mass casualty incident, um, and prompt them to tactically nuke whatever advancing direction of the Ukrainian army is trying to uh, you know, move into Crimea. Um, should there be any sort of large-scale attack, let's say Ukraine um, garners lots of battlefield momentum and decides to push further into Russia, um, let's say they try and forcibly depose Russian leadership um, somehow. These are all things that could be perceived, interpreted as an existential risk to Russia or a, a mass casualty incident uh, on Russian soil. Um, and, you know, like I said, the Niet means Niet memo. We knew that we were going to fuck around and we knew the chances of finding out were high. And it's similar to this, where we, we know what could happen, we know the odds, and we really shouldn't play them, but it kind of seems as though we may, uh, which is the scary part and why thankfully they are still rather low. I don't think Ukraine, unless perhaps Zelensky goes insane and thinks there's an existential risk to his regime, uh, would he do something as ridiculous as like a large scale strike um, on Crimea or into definitive Russian territory? So I, I know that most nuclear war simulations begin with one strike and then an immediate response. I mean, do you think MAD as a theory is still legitimate? And I mean, I kind of have seen the Biden administration back away from a mutual assured destruction type thinking. Like there, there are some comments that that uh, make it clear that they wouldn't. I, I can't think of any off, offhand, but I, I I remember hearing some comments earlier where where they were pretty sure that it wouldn't. 
build up and to, to be a, a larger nuclear conflict. Um, so I'm curious if, if you have any ideas there, if, if you think that uh, if they were to launch a tactical nuke in Crimea, would there be a response? Um, I'm going to quote a remarkably good and ahead of its time movie, uh, and that is War Games. And that is the only winning move is not to play. Uh, I, I truly think they hit the nail on the head with that one. And that even in some crazy slim chance that the powers that be put a stop to the nuclear conflict before it escalates beyond the point of no return, so to speak, um, you know, beyond that slim chance even, I, I think that we end up with something that we can't take back. Um, deploying nuclear weapons by modern states in this current day and age. Um, let's say, for example, that Russia does deploy a tactical nuke on Ukraine. I don't, you know, in this scenario, this might be one of the, the few scenarios where I'm not positive or even confident that the U.S. and the West would engage in its own nuclear response right away. I think they might launch an entirely total war, conventional war on Russia, you know, as a, as a punishment, as a consequence for nuking Ukraine. Um, which then in and of itself, though, I think would be more likely to spiral into the nuclear conflict there, where you know, a single tacti tactical nuke drop by Russia, I don't think we're going to start launching ICBMs 30 minutes from then. But the consequences of a tactical nuke use, I think, could boil over um, not long after into uh, full-blown nuclear warfare. And so I think it really is best that we adopt the idea that the only winning move is not to play. And it can be humiliating, right, not to play. It's especially as like, uh, you know, once you get into national fervor and patriotism, these are things that make you want to play the game. They make the game seem fun even. But with a rational and clear mind, anyone should realize that the game is not worth playing. Yeah. Um, because you're, ulti you're not playing life, but with millions, billions, potentially, um, you know, depending on the scale of, of the conflict that emerges. Uh, so I think it's important that we be humble and thoughtful as, as peacemakers, that we try and realize that there are going to be some ego hits, there are going to be some losses, there's going to be some mourning and some grief, but that's how we work through towards the best ultimate outcome, right? Um, I was discussing with you earlier uh, the uh, Beatitudes from the Bible and how it's such a great synopsis of of a solid foreign policy approach in many ways. You know, it it raves on about how blessed are the peacemakers, right? Blessed are those who are merciful. You know, blessed are those who mourn, right? All of these things may compromise us in terms of our own ego in terms of our national pride, but they are essential virtues to take to the negotiation table, to have as peacemakers. We can't go in there all prideful. We can't go in there with ill intent, with malice in our hearts. We have to go in there humble. We have to go in there merciful. We have to go in there with a sincere sense of righteousness with a cause. And we have to go in there, as I've made the distinction, as peacemakers, not peace forcers, right? There is an important line there. And so I would uh, encourage, you know, the leaders of all these major powers. I know that, uh, you know, Biden at least is Catholic. Putin, uh, you know, celebrates in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, Zelensky himself uh, is of the Jewish faith. And so they can all look to the Bible, at least, even if, 
you know, perhaps in one case, not to the New Testament, but look to these biblical virtues um, that are laid forth and realize that we should take them into our diplomacy and our foreign policy. We should be peacemakers so that we are blessed. We should be merciful and, and humble, meek, so that we can be blessed. Because if we don't, we bring ourselves to hell. Uh, and I mean that in the sense of nuclear Armageddon, the hell that we would uh, rot on earth, um, as well as depending on your belief uh, beyond now here on earth. So I think it's all the more critical that considered that we focus not on any given side, country, victor, outcome, winner, except on the victory and the outcome of a successful peace um, that can lead to a more stable world. And that's where we circle back to what does a stable world look like? What are the goalposts here on either side? And the goalpost of a unipolar NATO-led US dollar world, to me, is not one where peace is going to be lasting and sustainable. You're going to run into the same problems that you run into this conflict. If this doesn't change the world order, is the Taiwan conflict going to? Are we going to handle that any differently? Or are we going to have a giant rerun of the same hell on earth uh, warfare? Is this going to escalate into that because we refuse to settle it now? And so although I, of course, as an American, I, I don't advocate multipolarity because I, I hate the West, because I hate America, but because I love it and I want to see it thrive and cooperate with the nations of the world to, as you said, be a city on a hill. And I want Russia to be a city on a hill too. I want China to become a city on the hill where they can hold up as virtuous, sincere examples of how they express their national identity, their own will as a people, and that they can do it positively and in hopes of bettering not only themselves with their light, but the world with their light by shining it. So if we just take some of these very basic moral ethical principles and thoughts and apply them to how we approach seemingly very complex, given they are complex foreign policy scenarios, but we take these simple virtues and the paths way to peace and to stability become all the more clear. And so I think we can't discount very basic ways of thinking uh, about peace, about what we would like to see from the world. Because if we get lost in the politics and the history too much, we lose uh, what's at sight, which is uh, humanity, our souls, our consciousness, our hearts. Um, because ultimately this conflict is going to have an impact on all those things throughout the globe. I think both sides have been right in that this conflict is symbolic of a, of a larger battle in the global consciousness, a, a larger battle in the global hive mind, so to speak, is where different conflicting views are having to reconcile, unfortunately through violence, but hopefully eventually through peace, uh, through negotiation, through the word. I think you're, uh, you're muted, Liam, if I'm not uh, mistaken, unless it's my end. Nope, it, it was my end. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just going to say to go back to your point about whether we sh should respond during a nuclear strike. Um, I, I actually remember the quote. The quote. It was uh, Boris Johnson. He said that if if Putin were to launch a nuke, um, we would have enough economic responses. I, I, I think it would be like sanctions and, and blockades, where a nuclear response wouldn't be necessary. Um, that I, I think he threatened that. Russia would become 
like a frozen wasteland. I, I forget the exact terminology that he used. Uh, so well, it's funny given that that Russia's projected to grow more than the UK economically, despite all the sanctions. So exactly, well, it's a bold claim when you have uh, those chips in your hand, uh, cards in your hand. Yeah, and not despite the sanctions um, for UK. I mean, partially, it's it's responsible um, for why the UK and, and Europe is in the state that it is economically. Um, yeah, we I haven't we didn't even touch Nord Stream or any of the developments from uh, Seymour Hersh and all that. But I'm assuming a lot of the viewership is familiar with yeah. that blatant provocation. So not much there, need to link there. But there's there's so, so much here. <laughs> there's so much here, and we could we could keep going on. And I, I do want to get to one of um, the the questions that that was submitted. But but really quick, I, I do kind of have like an appeal for like optimism, I guess. Uh, so so the optimism. I think if, if this war were to end, uh, unfortunately, I think it would be because um, we would get to a position in Europe where we're at a situation where a lot of these NATO countries start pushing back because there's a lot of protests. Um, and, and we saw in the United States, there was the anti-war protest in DC last weekend, and there was a corresponding one in Germany where there were thousands of people that showed up. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's probably the avenue here. I don't think it's going to come out of the Biden administration. Um, and a lot can happen before. Way. What was that? It doesn't seem that way. Yeah. And, and a lot can happen before November 2024, um, which is terrifying to think of. So I think this is really going to have to be an organic thing. Um, you know, having conversations like this. And thankfully, we have decentralized media where where we're able to spread these ideas. And I think that it it I mean, it is taking hold. Um, you know, I, I think that there's also another uh, actually I, I'm going to pivot to the question because it's it's related to this. Um, the, these ideas are taking hold and, and we're seeing it in Congress uh, with Matt Gates introducing the Ukraine resolution to or I think it was actually Rosendale and um, it, it was a resolution to pull out of Ukraine um, while we uh, or until we fund the border and, and protect the border. Uh, so Isaac Nelson, he, he's asking, when speaking on inflation in the United States national debt, do you think with the new House leadership and especially Rosendale's promise to push for a balanced budget and the opposition um, to increasing our debt ceiling, will that impact our spending on Ukraine or will the Democrats simply brush this off? That is a good question. Um, and to touch on where the debt ceiling stands and plays into this, um, for those who aren't familiar, we are set to default on our debts as our, you know, our financial obligations as a nation. I believe it's in June or maybe July now, given their measures that they've taken at the Treasury. Um, but you know, this summer uh, we are set to default on our debt and financial obligations, uh, essentially because Congress is seemingly refusing to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, due to concerns that every time you raise the debt ceiling, you are committing uh, an economic sin of sorts and uh, setting yourself up for a bigger and bigger failure the longer that you let this debt pile up. Um, it's a, been a very common uh, point of contention in Congress. It's usually at the last minute resolved and the debt ceiling is raised. Um, and in this case, I don't know how much of an impact it would have immediately on aid to Ukraine. Um, the Biden administration, the Pentagon has said, that their big package at the end of last year in December, their omnibus spending package, pretty much covers them through the end of this fiscal year. 
um, after which point they would need to go through another process, get more funding from Congress. But they do seem pretty confident that uh, at their current pace and trajectory of aid, they're covered until we need to pass a new budget. Now, the question becomes if we have to shut down as a government, if Congress can never agree to a raise of the debt ceiling, um, they can't you know, authorize, get more money printed um, to, to pursue more Ukraine aid. So then it can become an issue. Um, but short term, I don't think that the shenanigans in Congress are going to be all that impactful. Um, although I've mentioned that there is a, a sizable Republican House opposition uh, to endless Ukraine aid, the Senate Republicans are sadly not so aligned on the issue. And so um, with Republican support, uh, you know, neocons and Democrats uh, aboard the Ukraine train in the House, they're able to pass most aid they'll want to. Similarly, in the Senate, they'll pretty much pass whatever Ukraine aid they want to without much objection, uh, besides from figures like uh, Rand Paul, for example. Um, and so as sad as it is to say, I don't think Congress is going to be the, um, the thing that budges at least short term. Now, as we get closer to 2024 is where we might start seeing true political pressure from the bases as complaints and worries and economic consequences start to pile up. If we are still dragging out and still bearing further and further um, consequences, you know, almost just skyrocketing faster than we can control at a certain point, um, then it's going to become an issue because people are going to start voting at the ballot box um, and they're going to vote people out of office who they think are placing Ukraine's interest above their own as a constituent of whatever lawmaker it may be. Yeah, and, and that, that was a good question. Um, so I hope that that answers it, despite probably being uh, not satisfactory. Yeah, and related to your answer, um, we, we saw Trump come out with a video, like a three, four minute video the other day where he was saying that um, uh, he was going to gut the Pentagon and the State Department of Warmongers. Yeah, and then he, he specifically called out Newland, which was great to see. Um, so it, it is awesome to see that it, it is becoming more mainstream to call out uh, neoconservative policies. Uh, and I, I just hope that they extend that to China because I mean, a lot of the times it's it's because they wanna pivot to China that they, they're expressing these um, beliefs in regards to Russia. They're, you know, they're able to see that when the West steps on the scale and, and benefits Ukraine, it incentivizes um, uh, Ukraine to become more belligerent and for Russia to escalate as well. But um, unfortunately, they 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 don't recognize that same dynamic in Taiwan. And, and we just escalated the National Guard and, and troop presence in Taiwan and uh, China is is increasing their um, military drills in the area as a result, um, and their response always corresponds with uh, more U.S. presence um, in Taiwan. Uh, and something I thought of in, in your last answer, and I'm going to wrap up here, but um, we, we didn't even get to the fact that Naftali Bennett, the previous Israeli prime minister, uh, came out a little bit ago and said that the West actually got a uh, interfered with with uh, talks between Ukraine and Russia and how uh, Putin had put on the table um, that he would get rid of the requirements to demilitarize Ukraine and he would also get rid of the requirement to denazify Ukraine um, if uh, Ukraine put on the table that they would uh, 
remain neutral and stay out of, out of NATO. And, and Ukraine had agreed to do that as well. Um, and the West got involved. And, and we know Boris Johnson also interfered earlier. He traveled to Ukraine and interfered in peace talks. Um, we, Merkel um, came out and said that uh, even the, the Minsk agreements were just temporary band-aids because they were just preparing for larger conflict. So if just to throw some more black pills out there, um, I, I did I did want to finish with some spiritual uh, advice too, um, some maybe Christian stoicism as as you kind of did with the Beatitudes. I'm going to read some C.S. Lewis. I've, I've read this on some um, other podcasts before, but I think that this is very important, both from a libertarian and a Christian perspective. I think that you can gain some wisdom, um, even if you're a non-believer here, uh, just with the your approach to stoic life and, um, you know, not letting things that you can't control, uh, you know, get to you. And, and this is an essay that, that was written by C.S. Lewis in regards to uh, the atomic age. And I'm going to just read this passage. It's a little lengthy, but I do think it is important and it's a uh, um, kind of a good way to wrap up. So he, what was that? Oh, I'm excited to hear it. I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis quotes, so I, I, I'm curious which one you're pulling out. Yeah, and I've, I've used this in articles before and other podcasts, so uh, listeners might be annoyed that, that I'm reading it again, but I think it's so important, and I constantly need to remind myself because I am fear-mongering a lot, and I am very worried about um, the risk of nuclear weapons being used, but I, I have to remind myself that I am saved, um, and, and here's the quote. So C.S. Lewis, he was asked a question, um, how, how should we live in an atomic age? And, and he says, I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in the Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situa situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors and aesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. And I, I really think that this kind of gets to, um, for us libertarians, uh, it, it gets to the idea that there's actually liberty in, in kind of um, what Paul was talking about, this, this Christian liberty where uh, our state of mind um, can actually free us. Uh, if, if, we, if we approach life in a Christian stoic kind of way, um, 
I could be a slave, but I could be more free than my master. Um, if, if my master is, you know, enslaved by his desires and enslaved by me as a slave, uh, and he, he is dependent on my work for him, uh, is he more a slave than I am if I am free spiritually? And I think that that is some serious advice that, that I need, need to remind myself of often. Um, I freak out about the fact that uh, our leaders may drive us into nuclear war. But at the same time, I, I try to be at peace um, <laughs> internally. And, and I guarantee you, um, many of these people at, at these high levels of government are not. And we should pray for them for that, I think. That's, that's uh, beautifully put. And it's an issue that I personally love as well. Uh, this idea of inner liberty, um, ascetic liberty, as uh, one of my favorite thinkers, Sorokin, put it. And, you know, I know we talk so much about uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict in our recent podcast. I'd love to come back in the future uh, for a show just on libertarian philosophy, ethics, uh, links to Christianity and other, uh, you know, schools of thought. It would be a lovely conversation because there is so much uh, of a broader discussion to be had about life and humankind uh, than just these particular issues and their consequences. But as you've uh, aptly pointed out, they are ultimately super connected. You know, a, a solid conscious and a good heart and a good soul can remain and withstand through the most tumultuous of times and global circumstances uh, so long as it does not get corrupted by overthinking uh, about these global, global circumstances. I don't think the human mind has fully adapted to worrying about global news cycles, even national news cycles quite yet. You know, we are very localized beings from an evolutionary sense. And so learning how to responsibly handle emotions and actions when it comes to a conflict thousands of miles away, we can't entirely blame ourselves for not handling it perfectly because there is a learning curve for sure. But we can't stop trying to learn and improve as students of, you know, the, uh, the rulers of the, of the planet, uh, the rulers of our destinies. We have to take responsibility as uh, responsible human beings. Uh, I've talked about how this conflict is wrapped in a larger uh, battle for the global consciousness, the noosphere, how we're going to handle ourselves as interconnected networked beings. Uh, and you can't start diving into those questions just with politics and history. You have to get to philosophy, ethics, uh, you know, more theoretical, abstract, uh, esoteric matters. And I know we want to wrap up here. We're just at 90 minutes, which is, you know, absolutely perfect. You know, attention spans are fried. So if people make it this far, uh, I'm pleased. Um, but I just I saw a great tweet and I love complex systems. I have to share this thought that tank warfare is technically an emergent property of complex biological systems. You know, we're adaptive complex systems and we have evolved into tank warfare um, just as a matter of fact. But the beauty of complex adaptive systems, right, is that they're feedback loops. We have inputs, outputs, feedback, and, you know, it all goes again. And in this case, the feedback, the response to this conflict in our behaviors should be to better them should be to understand from the mistake, to, to create good and shine light out of the dark and evil that we may find ourselves in. And so although we may have naturally come into war and we may be warlike beings who are just absolute beasts sometimes, the conflict then also provides the perfect opportunity 
to figure out how to transform beyond that. Uh, and so not only should we be peacemakers for the sake of making peace and saving lives now, but so that we may learn how to do it better in the future. Um, and I think that that is a great, you put me out perfectly for that ending message. So I appreciate it, Liam. Yeah, of course. And, and paradoxically, if, if we do take C.S. Lewis's advice and we, you know, kind of almost retreat, um, you know, I, I don't think we have to throw off all responsibility and, and not not call out our leaders when they uh, step out of line. But if, if we focus on the things that matter locally and we focus on our family, we focus on the, you know, bettering ourselves, taking responsibility, it it will impact the world. Uh, it has this network effect, as as you suggested, where um, it will reverberate if, if we if we, you know, impact our family around us and, and our, our network around us. Um, hopefully, uh, if everyone were to take C.S. Lewis's advice, we'd, we'd live in a peaceful world. Um, if we if we localize our why, the how will be apparent to all, I think is a really good I think you hit the nail on the head there. If we can drive the messages for why war is bad and peace is good and make its benefits tangible to the people closest to us, um, it's going to have, as you said, paradoxically, the most global impact. So, well, we'll, really we'll, wrap, up. we'll wrap up there. Uh, do you just want to tell people where they can find your stuff? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I encourage you to give me and Liam, if you haven't already, a follow on Twitter. Uh, I'm at the underscore posts, posts from underground, uh, homage to Dostoevsky in that title. Um, uh, be on the lookout for any future content I may put forward. I'm a busy individual, as you can imagine, with the uh, ongoing conflict, which I uh, focus on. Uh, but taking C.S. Lewis's advice, I might need to put my mind towards other things uh, more frequently. So follow me, find out. All right, everyone. And and make sure to tune back to my podcast with Darren Gobb from Wednesday, where we discuss the Defend the Guard Act. It's coming up on Monday. Um, a serious reason we need to um, vote for this bill and make sure it gets through the legislature and to the governor's desk is because Biden is clearly escalating this war. We might send troops there. Um, it seems like that's where that's heading. Unfortunately, I think also a draft might follow because retainment and recruitment are low. Uh, and, and we need Congress to go on record if they are going to send our troops to this conflict. So if we pass the Defend the Guard Act, um, it will require Congress to vote uh, in favor of the war if they want to send our National Guard um, troops to Ukraine to fight in this conflict and any future conflicts that, that will follow. So uh, please check that out. Remember to subscribe. Um, check check this podcast out on other platforms as well. I'm on Odyssey. I think I'm on Rumble and all the audio uh, podcatchers. So uh, remember to follow me at MLiam on Twitter. And then I'll have the other links in the description soon. Um, but thanks for everyone who is listening. Make sure to give it a like and, and subscribe.